Well, good morning, church. Um, I've been reflecting that there's something about just being near the water that seems to nourish the soul, isn't there? I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I've had conversations with where they talk about going to the beach or sitting by the river or going out on the lake. There's, I'm sure there's a bunch of fishermen here who just love being in, on, near the water. And they do so at times, they go to these places to, to restore and to refresh themselves. It seems we don't even have to be in it necessarily, we just need to be near it to feel its effects on our lives. That's why then in something like Psalm 23, when it talks about being led beside, he leads me beside still waters, there's something about that that is so comforting and reassuring for us. We saw it too back in, in Psalm 1 where the person who delights in God's word, they're likened to a tree planted by streams of water. And so they are constantly nourished and are rich and vibrant with life. We need water for life. Uh, I don't know the exact figures, nor, nor do I know how actually scientifically accurate they are. There's probably lots of variables in, involved. But we can survive for months without food, as long as we stay hydrated. But when you take water out of that equation, we will survive only about a week. And so the sentiment, that's the sentiment that's being expressed in our Psalms for today, in Psalms 42 and, and 43, which the reason why we read both of them together is because they're almost universally recognized to have been just one Psalm originally that then was split at a later point. And it opens with these familiar lines. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. I don't know about you, I'm not very familiar with deer. Uh, growing up in the suburbs of Sydney, not many deer around. But we do have two border collies. And I know they're beautiful, aren't they? Oh. Every now and then we'll take the dogs down, down to the dog park and throw the ball and let them have a good run. And then in the car trip home, all you hear is <laughs> the, the huffing and puffing as they pant after water. Or when we take them for a long walk, Willow, who's the older one, the, the black and white one, she will find any old puddle of water for a drink. In fact, even though we don't live near there anymore, she still remembers there's a little pond at the base of, of Fed Hill. Uh, and so she will take herself up there, you know, just off on her own, knowing that there's water there because that's what she's after. And so if I, if I were to translate this, this opening verse of the psalm, I'd leave the deer out of it, and it would be, as the border collie pants for any body of water. So my soul pants for you, my God. But I was actually struck by something that I hadn't considered before as I looked at this psalm uh, this week. And perhaps it's because of the old song that, that was based on this psalm, which I asked Bob not for us to not do today because we just 
discussed it in, in our staff meeting on Monday and all of us complained, oh my goodness, it's just stuck in there. But anyway, we'll see how we go. But, but that song, um, because of that song, I think, I always assumed that this psalm was about wanting more of God. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone will my spirit yield. It's there, isn't it? It's gonna... <laughs> But my, my sense of it from, from that song, my sense of it was that from this place of already having God and a nourishing relationship with Him, that the psalm then expressed a, a desire for, for more. God, I already have this abundance of you and I, I just want more. But as I reflected on the panting of my border collies, I realized that that's not right. It's a psalm that actually is coming from a place of thirst. A place of need, not from a place of abundance, of already having so much and just wanting more and more, but from having not, from not having, from a lack. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with my God? These are not the words of someone who's planted by streams of water who just wants to soak up some more. This is someone in the desert far from water, desperately thirsty. Or, or maybe, thinking of the deer analogy, this is someone who has been running and running, doing and doing, and they're now dehydrated, in, in desperate need of restorative, revitalizing water to bring life and energy again. Either way, this psalm comes from someone who is thirsty because they lack this is someone who is desperate for God because he seems to be absent. He's certainly absent from their life and their experience at this time. Their soul is dry and parched and they long to drink from the stream of living water again. The big difference really between literal thirst and a spiritual thirst is that we can remain ignorant of our, of our need and desire for God much longer than he's good for us. In fact, when we're in a hard time, that's probably the time when we're conscious to drink from the well all the more frequently. But when life is going fine and we're cruising along, when we're busy with life and family and friends and activity, that's when we can neglect our soul and its need to drink regularly of God. So this psalm then starts with thirst, with longing, with desire for God. When can I go and meet with my God? There's an eagerness there that's born not out of a current delight, not out of already having abundance and just wanting more, but there's an eagerness that comes out of need. And so he says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? The, the psalmist longs to be drinking of God, but all that they're getting is just the moisture of their tears. He needs life-giving, soul-refreshing water, but instead his drink is the grief and the pain and the hollowness of sorrow. Another translation of this second couplet in the verse says that it's his tears that say to him all day long, where is your God? And so whether it's the, the people looking on, looking at his life and observing, or whether it's the, the sorrow that's expressed in his own tears, his experience is one that just leaves him longing for God. 
and whichever it is that prompts the question, the, the psalmist then actually does know where his God is. People or his tears are asking, where is your God? But he knows. God is in Jerusalem, in his holy temple, with his people gathered there. The, the God of the universe, who is everywhere present, has made his dwellings among his people and is somehow specially and specifically located in his temple. And the psalmist then is desperate to, to go there and to meet again with his God, to, to drink of the water as he has done in the past. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. He remembers his past experience where he wasn't left pant panting with thirst, but instead he was vocal with praise. He remembers when he wasn't full of desire because it was being satisfied. And so the experience that he's in now stands in contrast to what he's experienced before. And, and that just then serves to heighten the longing even further, doesn't it? God, I, I've, I've had good times with you in the past, praising you, you know, and, and along with all your people, knowing joy and delight, but, but that's not where I am now. And I want to be there again. And I don't understand why I, I'm not. And you seem to, to you know, be getting in the way even of that happening. You're certainly not helping me get there. But, but notice something, though, in what he said. He's actually not voicing an accusation against God. Rather, what happens here is we are being let on an internal conversation that the psalmist is having. And it's a conversation that he's having primarily with himself, um, though also being aware that such inner di dialogue is spoken in the presence of God. See, God is only addressed directly in, in verse 1 and verse 6. Otherwise, the psalm is prayerful thoughts, if you like. They're not, they're not a prayer as such, but they're certainly much more than just his own thinking and ruminations. So in these prayerful thoughts, he, he's not accusing God, but he's meditating on his experience, past, present, and looking to the future, knowing that God is listening in. And, and so here then is intimacy with God. Because it's not a case of, of fake it till you make it, though, though sometimes that is a necessary thing. But what is going on here is an honest reflection on life, on life with God in its joys and in its trials, and expressing the desire of the heart in and through it all, that God, I not only want you, but I need you. My desire is for you, both as I consider how I've walked with you in the past and as I consider my distance and separation from you now. Intimacy doesn't come through just a, a cold rationality, but through desire and through the sharing of all of life together. And that's what this psalm is expressing. The thing is, though, we're not always or even not often aware of this desire in our own hearts. We don't feel our thirst because either we distract ourselves from it or because we, we try to numb ourselves against it or, or we try to satisfy it with, with other things. So there is a sense in which we need to pay attention to our inner lives and then direct where we channel the desire that we find there. And so we come in verse 5 to this. 
Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Soul, what, why are you flattened with depression? Soul, why are you so full of anxiety? And there's no answer given to these questions. But there is a response. The response to these questions is to put your hope in God. This prayerful thought is directed to himself. He's directing his attention and his desire. He recognises he's downcast and disturbed. And he doesn't try to talk himself out of it. He doesn't try to minimise it or deny it or any of that. But rather, in the midst of that, he directs himself to put his hope in God in the midst of it, knowing that as the good shepherd, God will lead him through that dark valley. And so he knows then that I will yet praise him. We've talked before in this series about, about where we fix our gaze. Like we, we can look at the waves that are surrounding us, that are threatening to, to swamp us, or we can lift our eyes above them and look to the God who is over all. We can fix our eyes on, on down and on how we're doing and have this limited and small view of the world, or we can lift our eyes off of ourselves and to the God who is bigger, far bigger than us. And lifting our gaze, changing our perspective, it doesn't change the situation, but it changes what we see. It changes our, our perspective and orientation. And the psalmist knows this, so he speaks to his own soul in the midst of his discouragement and difficulty to put its hope in God, knowing God to be his saviour and his God. And I say this so often, none of this is to make light of his or of our own experience. Because uh, undeniably, depression, anxiety, grief, pain, other hardships, they can make it really hard for us to look to God. They become kind of all-consuming and it becomes difficult for us. But it's in God where our hope is actually found. And so in the midst of that experience, the psalmist directs his soul, his heart, his whole being to God. Put your hope in God. And we see this then again as the psalm continues. Verse 6, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. My soul is downcast. Therefore, I will remember you. My life is so hard and overwhelming. Therefore, I will direct my attention to you. I'm dying of spiritual thirst. Therefore, I will pursue you as the source of life-giving water. The psalmist here is literally distant from God. He is at the, the headwaters of the Jordan in far north Israel, almost as far from Jerusalem and the temple and the dwelling place of God, almost as far from there as he could be and yet still be within Israel. Though perhaps the physical geography is used as a metaphor to describe how far spiritually he feels away from God. But it's then for that very reason, that awareness of the distance 
that the psalmist then disciplines himself to still desire after God. It's a statement of cause and effect. I'm far from you, therefore I'll remember you. I'm far from you, but I'm not content there. So rather than wallowing in that or whatever, therefore I'll remember you. And one of the things that he remembers of God is his love. By day the Lord directs his love and at night his song is with me. And the word here for love is the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to God's steadfast covenantal loyalty to his people. And this steadfast love is with the psalmist day and night. It's with him 24-7, which means that even in what he's experiencing and through what he's experiencing, God is directing his love towards him. There's a contrast between the felt experience and the, the theological reality, which is why then he directs his soul in the midst of his experience to remember what he knows of God and to hold on to those truths of God's steadfast love in the midst of an experience where it seems like God has forgotten him. That the experience that, that he's in, we see in verse 10, seems to be one of deep suffering, perhaps chronic pain in his bones, which may be then what's keeping him from uh, heading to the temple. But in the midst of that experience, therefore I'll remember you and the love that you continue to express towards me, God. And so why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And then the psalm continues into the what is the next one for us. And here now the psalmist makes his first plea to God, his first cry, you know, asking him of something. And he says, Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. His cries for God to look at his life and to see his integrity and his faithfulness. While others may have been unfaithful to God, he has remained true. And it's an echo of David's prayer in Psalm 26. David says there, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and I have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. And we understand this sentiment, don't we? It's one of our big wrestles with suffering because we think, God, man, I've been following you faithfully all these years. Why then am I experiencing this? But we forget that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to God. And he suffered, he was crucified. God's promise for us is never a pain or difficulty-free life. I mean, as Jesus says, in this world, you'll have trouble. I mean, he knew what he was talking about. And so God's promise is for his presence and his faithfulness and his love to us, even in the midst of trouble. And so our hope then is not in our goodness, but in his 
the psalmist's prayer is that God would bring him back into his presence. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. He's not there yet, though. That's, that's his cry. That, that's his plea to God, bring me back. But he's not there yet. And so the psalm concludes then with these repeated and familiar words. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What then do we learn from this psalm, especially as it relates to our own intimacy with God? What does this psalm model for us? Or what does it invite us to as we pursue a deepening life with God? Let's consider briefly three things. And the first is something that could be easily overlooked. And that is that intimacy with God is not born in the moment of crisis, but is done so in the normal, the ordinary days of life. I acknowledge I've said that as a kind of categorical statement, but, and I realize that it's not strictly true, but it's not necessarily the case. But what this psalm shows us is that intimacy with God pre-existed this current experience of suffering and difficulty. And I say this because he remembers how he used to go to the house of God with shouts of joy and praise, for instance. His relationship with God was, was cultivated in the good times so that then it could be expressed and held on to in the hard times. Because look at this. In these two Psalms, he speaks about thirsting for God because he feels like he's been forgotten about God, uh, forgotten by God or rejected by God, which are, which are really strong words. But kind of in, in contrast to those words, pay attention to the words he uses to describe God. My God, the living God, my Saviour, the Lord, which is written then in capital letters, indicating that it's the name Yahweh, the, the personal name that God has revealed of himself to his people. God is my rock, my stronghold, my joy, my delight. Oh God, my God. He knows God. He's experienced God. He has a relationship with God. The, the references to, to my God run throughout the psalm. And it's this intimacy that was born from past experiences in the ordinary days and before this current moment of crisis that then enables him to know that he will yet praise him and continue to put his hope in God in the meanwhile. So, so don't wait for the crisis to hit before you start calling out to God. I mean, do that, but, but don't wait for that. Start now. Get to know who God is now when, when, when things are okay and good so that when the crisis comes, you know who your God is and you know that you can yet hope in him. Secondly, and Roderick talked about this a bit last week, to, to go to the house of God, to go to the place where he dwells is for us to meet with the living God in and with his people. 
in the Old Testament, which is the context in which this psalm was written, the house of God was a physical place. It was the temple in Jerusalem. And so if you were in the boondocks of far north Israel, you were, you were physically, geographically, but spiritually then separated from, from God in that way. But in the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, God now lives in us. Now, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So this means that for us, unlike for the psalmist, we have immediate access to God wherever we are. But God lives not just in you, but in us. We meet with him not just in our lives individually by ourselves, but in each other. We together are the house where God dwells. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You know the verse where where Jesus says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When I was a a teenager, I had a mentor explain this verse to me in a way that I've I've never forgotten that and that's profoundly uh, impacted me. And he explained it by saying that, that Jesus is present in this gathering of two or three or however many it is. Jesus is present in that gathering because he's present in each of the ones who are there gathered. And so in, in other words, we meet with God by meeting with, with his people. We see Jesus by seeing him in one another. This is then another reason why we're told not to give up meeting together because in meeting with each other, we experience the rich fullness of Christ in and through each other. So intimacy with God is born in the normal days of life. And we meet with God, yes, by ourselves, but in and with his people. And thirdly, from this psalm, Uh, This psalm starts with desire. And it's that desire that prompts the psalmist to pursue God's presence and intimacy with him. So it's a fair question for us to ask, do you desire God? Do you hunger and thirst for him? And to a degree that will make you do something about it. See, here's the thing. You and I won't pursue God if we don't have a powerful and an overwhelming desire for him. Like, I desire to lose weight, but not as much as I desire to eat donuts. (laughs) I desire to get fit and exercise, but not as much as I desire to stay in bed in the warm and the comfort and get a bit of extra sleep. I desire to reduce my my screen time, but not enough to actually commit to doing anything about it. So I desire a deeper relationship with God. The question is, do I desire him enough to act on it? Do I thirst for him? When our dog Willow is thirsty from her walk, I don't have to make her drink. She pursues it. She pants for it and is not satisfied until she gets it. Are we like that with God? In Psalm 37, David says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I've heard this talked about in many ways that 
I don't, know, I don't think are quite right. But I think when we look at this, when we find our joy and our delight in God, then of course God will satisfy the desires of our heart because our desires are for Him. When, when He is our delight, we long for Him, we want Him, we desire Him. And so He sees that desire and He says, yes, I want that too. And He delights to then meet that desire in us. So do we desire Him enough to pursue Him? Because it's our desire that prompts our pursuit or our lack of pursuit of Him. Because as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. This psalm expresses a desire for God, a desire that God wants to satisfy. Jesus says to the woman by the well, whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then later at one of the Jewish festivals, Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty, whether you're a deer a border collie, huffing and panting. <laughs> Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So are you thirsty this morning? Because if you are, the invitation of Jesus is come. Come and drink. Come and have your fill Unlike the psalmist, we are not kept at a distance from God because in Jesus, God came near to us and he cleared away the barriers that would keep us from him. Do you feel unworthy? Jesus says, come and drink. Are you aware of your sin? Jesus says, come and drink. Are you feeling distant from God? Jesus says, come and drink. Are you busy and distracted? Jesus says, come and drink. Are you suffering and confused? Jesus says, come and drink. There is nothing to keep us away from God, nothing that hasn't been overcome by Jesus. And we're going to remember that now as we share in communion taking the bread to remember his body broken for us, taking the cup to remember his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. And through his death on the cross on our behalf, doing everything to make possible for us to be able to come to God and to drink. And so as, as we take communion this morning, we come to him, the source of living water and of life in its fullness and of life in and with God. May we drink and may we be satisfied. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of this psalm that put voice to our experience and I thank you for the way in which it, it, it opens us up to this, this question of our, our desire 
do we thirst for you? Are we longing just to drink and to be satisfied? And so in this moment, God, I ask um, that you would speak into each of our hearts, that you'd shine the light of your spirit there and to show up where, where we do long for you or where, in honesty, we, we don't and we're content with other things. And as your spirit illuminates that, may he do so not to bring guilt and condemnation, but instead to invite us to you in all your fullness and all your goodness. Jesus, give us the desire to come to you and drink, to never thirst, but instead have your living water so well up within us that it just overflows and spills out to others. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you have done everything possible so that we can come to you. We are not kept at a distance. We are not removed from you, but we have your spirit within us. You are nearer, closer than we could ever, ever kind of fathom. And so we thank you for what you've done to make that possible. We will remember that now as we share in communion together. And as we do so, as we come forward to receive uh, these elements, may it be an expression of our desire for you to come to you and to drink, to come to you, the source of living water. And so we pray, Jesus, be at work in our desires. Draw us to yourself as you invite us to. And may in knowing you, May we know that in all things we can put our hope in you, knowing that we will yet praise you because you are our saviour and our God. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.